Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Australia's involvement in East Timor from 1999 to 2000 was the single largest deployment of Australian Defence Force personnel since the Second World War and an instrumental part of Timor-Leste gaining its independence. It was also the first time this country has led such a large multinational force. Now, a history's been written about that time. The new book, Born of Fire and Ash, is the first volume in the landmark official history of Australian operations. That official history will cover Iraq, Afghanistan, but this particular book covers East Timor. Derived from classified government sources and hundreds of interviews with veterans and East Timorese and Australian departmental staff and Indonesian uh, military personnel too, the book takes a look at the success and failures of the mission. Uh, It's in a long line of official histories of Australian military involvement. Uh, It's taken three years to get published. Um, Professor Craig Stockings is Australia's official historian of military operations for the book. He also served in the International Force in East Timor, that's Interfet, deployed in uh, 1999-2000 as a junior officer. So he's uniquely qualified. He joins us to talk about the new book. Craig Stockings, good evening. Welcome to Nightlife. Good evening. Thank you, Nightlife. Thank you, listeners. What a pleasure it is to have the opportunity to um, to talk with you yeah. about the book uh, now, this evening. So my thanks indeed. There's been a lot of commentary about the length of time it's taken to get the book published and also allegations of censorship and approvals taking too long and also the reception of the book itself. There's been a fair bit of media commentary saying, you know, that official circles seem to be in two minds as to whether this is a good idea or not. And uh, it seems that, I don't know, I'm not even sure there's going to be an official launch, is there, by the Australian War Memorial, which, after all, was uh, essentially commissioning the project. What's the situation, Craig? Gee, there's, there's a whole lot to unpack there, but let me do the last first, if I might. There is going to be, as I understand it, an event um, occurring in mid-March uh, that will that we'll talk about the book sponsored and hosted by the memorial. Yes, there wasn't um, a formal launch. Um, I won't speak to that to listeners. I think the memorial would be do a better job of answering those questions. But it is unusual and it is remarkable. Uh, but we will we will be talking about the book in uh, in two or three weeks or so. Hmm. It's a huge uh, thing, nine hundred pages, uh, and. Well, there's a whole range of material, including, I presume, classified material that you're working with, was there? Indeed. Um, the tradition of official histories uh, in Australia, going back almost a century now, a little more than a century actually, is that uh, an independent official historian and group of researchers set about this task writing from the official record. Now, the official record in this case is a classified record. So it is, as you alluded to earlier, it is entirely appropriate that the, what we write free from censorship and interference, is cleared by those stakeholder departments and agencies so that they they can be sure that there's nothing inappropriate released in the public domain. That's a thing and that's an appropriate thing. And that's been the case for all recent official histories. What's remarkable, I think, about this volume is the length of time that process took. It took longer to clear than it did uh, to write. Now, you're going to ask, why was that so? My answer to that question is, in terms of pure uh, information security issues, that was pretty quick and pretty painless, but I think there is some ambiguity, some gray area, if you like, as to where information security stops and where certain official preferences or reputation management might begin. And maybe in that gray zone is the sort of mm. um, answers mm. the question as to why 
this took so long to clear. But on the upside, we did get there. A book exists yeah. on my table. Okay. Peter Cosgrave, of course, was the commander of the International Task Force in East Timor, uh, famously. Uh, he's welcomed your book, and he says that a book is accurate. Uh, that must be something for you, I would imagine. It's very heartening indeed. Um, I did have, a, I did read um, what Sir Peter had written. That's very, it's very nice to hear from a key uh, participant or commander of the Interfet Force in that regard. Mm. Um, certainly, his view has has meaning to me. That's reassuring indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I suspect a lot of the, the perhaps the, if not controversy, but different views about a work like this stem from the fact of there were very different views, weren't there, about the Australian involvement in East Timor right from the get-go because it wasn't the case historically, was it, that Australia had been some, and you say it's quite inaccurate to to describe Australian, uh, you know, the Australian intervention as some sort of liberation or, or, or act to, you know, protect the East Timorese uh, from, from, uh, from the Indonesians, etc. that hist- this is just not 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 the case that historically, of course, Australia was much more interested in ensuring good relations with Indonesia than liberating, in inverted commas, the East Timorese. Yeah, I think that's a fair representation. Even if there's even if there's risk in distilling lots of complexity down into into generalisations, that's true. From the period of 1975 onward, there was a a real politic strategic logic for Australian policymakers in making sure. Uh, Timor was part of the Republic of Indonesia. That's right. Um, the, the the area to the north of Australia was stable, and that relations with our most important strategic partner, that is Jakarta, remained on a on an even keel. So that's right. We didn't want to do anything to really upset the Indonesians here, did yeah. we? Did we? And that was our that was our that was our main that was our main thing. Uh, that, that's the long term uh, policy objective, and it's not without its logic. I think the difficulty comes though is is when it, it may come, or you might say when that sort of official policy starts to diverge significantly from the public will. Hmm. I mean, as a historian, when those two things uh, diverge, they, there tends to be a reckoning of the sort we saw uh, in some regards in 1999. Hmm. I think it would also be fair to say that whilst Australia, it's a big deal for Australia, we're not always at the centre of the storm here. There were events and issues uh, setting the pace on the international scale here, which Canberra didn't have a whole lot of control um, so events did certainly force a change of policy throughout 1999, but to suggest that there is a there is idea that um, that the policymakers really wanted to get and make sure that these Timorese had a right to self self determination, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, at all costs, wouldn't be an accurate narrative. That, that's just not it's not correct, is it? No, it's, it's no. not correct. I mean, the policy that Australia had, which was. Uh, I don't want to use the word appeasement, but that is to ensure good relations with Indonesia, including uh, not picking a fight over East Timor with Indonesia. That kind of changed with a letter that Prime Minister Howard wrote to the Indonesian, to the new Indonesian president, President Habibi, didn't it, after the overthrow of Sukarno. And Habibi wanted to fix the problem in East Timor, and John Howard wrote him a letter which said that Australia would be okay with that, didn't he? Well, the problem towards the end of, of 1998 in the context of new Indonesian uh, president was an increasing amount of international attention was, was uh, being focused on East Timor. It has been described as a burr in the saddle of the relationship. It was always there in the background. 
So there is an opportunity, uh, so it was thought in late 1998, to help influence this, come up with a solution for the Timor, East Timor question, which wouldn't result immediately in its independence, but some arrangement that would take the heat out of the issue. Hmm. That's what uh, the Prime Minister wrote to the President suggesting. What he got, however, what the, the policymaking community in Australia got on the 27th of January was something they didn't expect at all. And that is a response by the Indonesian president saying, well, in that case, no, thank you. We won't follow that particular path you've suggested. We'll go a bit step further and ask for some, have some sort of uh, vote or plebiscite in East Timor to see what uh, that province actually wants. Does it want more autonomy within the Republic or does it want independence? That's the first time the spectre of an independent East Timor is anything like a reality. Right. And that's not something that Australia welcomed, did we? Well, not necessarily. As I said, there is strategic logic in keeping, um, in the context of the financial crisis and all of these sorts of things, in keeping uh, the East Timor in part, as part of hmm. Indonesia. So not necessarily welcome. It's the antithesis of a long-standing policy. So uh, so no, I think welcome, not welcome would be an accurate term, but it was something that that Australia had to deal with as it became outpaced by events in the province itself. Now, you say also in the book that uh, this letter that John Howard sent to uh, President Habibi was sent without the knowledge of the Defence Force, uh, and they didn't at that stage think that they would be involved in anything in particular. The idea of there's suddenly a need for peacekeeping took the Defence Forces in Australia by complete surprise. Yes, it, but it is one of the more remarkable findings, I think, of the research that we conducted. And note that in an era of whole of government discussions, that's not really what occurred. Um, so I guess defences being the organisation that ended up holding the bag certainly wasn't privy to events uh, leading up to and including the dispatch of the letter which changed the game. Um, I mean, that, that's just a, that's a remarkable thing, but mm. nonetheless, it's a, it's a historical fact. Mm. You say they argue the ADF at the time. This is because after after President Habibi's decision to to have this vote and so on, it it rapidly becomes clear that there's going to be a need for peacekeeping, and uh, this is where Australia becomes involved. You say the ADF was largely unsuited at the time to a large scale overseas operation, anyway. Well, I would say to the first part of your question that not in, is not. I wouldn't mark January as a significant policy change. There are still hopes and efforts made to find a way out of this situation, which didn't involve the deployment of large numbers of Australian service people, uh, or if it had to, then those numbers had to be at a bare minimum. Hmm. That's that still goes on through March and April, and and all all the way towards the deployment of a United Nations uh, ballot force in June. So it's a gradual transition. I think if I was going to say what the watershed moment is, the watershed moment is, and I have to concede that the government is warming and Mr Howard is warming to this idea as the year unfolds. But the watershed moment is is the 4th of September when um, the, the results of the vote are released, uh, which show overwhelming uh, East Timorese support for their own independence and the horrific scenes that follow, which get broadcast into people's living rooms. This is the thanks terrible to... violence post-referendum, aren't there? Yeah, thanks, thanks, I've got to say, to the bravery of some journalists that made sure those images got out and which had a policy impact in and of itself. At once, once that occurs, then a peacekeeping force is, is going to be required. That's just not an Australian initiative. That's a UN initiative. And certainly by then, uh, all the machinery of officialdom swinging behind that force. 
But that's not a decision of January. That's a transition throughout the year. Second part of the question was, was defence ready? No, it wasn't. The, the ADF, well, it's never going to be ready or perfectly happy that it's ready, but the ADF was hollowed out significantly in the name of various efficiency reviews in the period leading up to 1999. Um, I don't think it's be giving the organisation too much of a disservice to describe it very much as a peacetime organisation hmm. and not at all ready for the demands at for overseas deployment. Yeah, for overseas deployment, exactly. That's right. They had no, there's no, there was no cultural training about East Timor. They hadn't even decided on rules of engagement until about well, three days before no, before they, they launched the operation. Well, we could go further. I think there is one petrol operator in the entirety of the Defence Force. That's a, a single point of failure. But, that, but that's not the point. The point, well, it is a point, but I think the other point is that the fact that this deployment succeeded in spite of those challenges, institutional yeah. and strategic and otherwise, is testament to those uh, in uniform and those back in Canberra that just made it work. It enhances the legacy. It doesn't undermine it, but it's true. Hmm. Uh, I think the interesting question now is, given we the Defence has reportedly been on operations for 20 years in the Middle East, uh, within someone else's administrative and logistic and strategic infrastructure, uh, the big question is what would happen if we needed to do an East Timor again? Uh, they're not questions I can answer in a speculative way, but we haven't been tested in that way since. No. Um, with Professor Craig Stockings, who's written uh, a, a monumental history of the Australian involvement in East Timor as part of the official history of Australian operations in East Timor. There'll be further volumes on Iraq and Afghanistan uh, just moving away from the strict politics of it at the moment, what, what were the East Timorese thinking at the time when Interfet landed? I mean, were they, do they want them there? Do they, yeah. Did they want the Australians there? Absolutely. If I was characterised a veteran experience after the interviews and so on and so forth, a number of things stand out. The first thing front and centre is how devastated the place was and what a tragedy we'd seen, the, the bloodstains, the bodies, the scenes of violence. But as people did return, as security was being established, uh, it's the smiles and the thanks and the hand waves and the thumbs up. Uh, that's a human message that I think veterans carry with them and rightfully proud of that, uh, of doing real good there. Hmm. Um, what also comes along with that, though, which is, I think, a bit interesting and a bit more difficult, is a type of friction, I think I would describe it, um, I mean, the, the ADF at that time is conducting joint patrols and operations with the, its Indonesian equivalents, but ADF service people of all ranks aren't silly. They soon become well aware of, of the nature of the violence and who was responsible for it, yet this cooperation was still happening. The Timorese were not shy in pointing out who they thought the perpetrators of the violence were. So there's that sort of uh, friction um, for those not aware of the strategic complexities, which is another another element that's been carried away, I think, by veterans. Mm. Yes, uh, that's right. And, you, I mean, and you're right to think, and you, you certainly conclude in your book that, that despite the rocky beginnings of the whole thing, in the end it, it was a, a success, uh, in large part due to, what, the leadership, do you think, Peter Cosgrove's leadership? Or... I think, I think uh, Peter Cosgrove did a magnificent job. I think that's, that's acknowledged, not just in military terms, but in, uh, hmm. in alliance juggling terms and political terms as well. Hmm. But it's also the unsung uh, individuals, I think, the middle management, those out of uniform back in Australia. I mean, twice as many people in Australia are supporting this effort as are deployed, and there's 5,500 deployed, so this is a big effort. So all those sleepless nights, all those committee meetings, all of those things, personal connections that made it work, 
they're the guys that don't get and gals that don't get the medals, but uh, but due deference to their efforts. Yeah. Well, thank you for for doing the work. Um, it's uh, it's an important thing that we do document these things. And uh, no one doubt, down, one down, five to go. Yeah, there'll be future histories to write and future histories of East Timor to be written too. But this is a great starting point, Professor Craig Stockings. It's been terrific to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au/nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.